We'll invite you back to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and our message will come from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. We've entitled these thoughts, Paul the Suffering Steward. Paul the Suffering Steward. This morning we come to the last verses of Colossians chapter 1, in which Paul sums up, if you will, all that he has been expressing throughout this chapter to the church at Colossae with some words regarding his stewardship of the gospel, his suffering for the gospel, and the more recently revealed, as it were, mystery of the Gentile church, something that he will refer to as a mystery which has been hid from all ages and generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, namely the Gentile, the non-Jewish church. I say that this sums up his points. These passages, the statements that we consider today, bring a lot of the thoughts that we've considered that Paul expressed to the church at Colossae to a close in a sense He sews it up nicely before moving on and transitioning into the more weighty matters that he wanted to address with them, specifically certain errors that threatened the existence of the church at Colossae. Be very clear that serious error, now to be very, very frank with it, none of us have a corner market on the truth. None of us have 100% accuracy in all of our opinions, and anybody that tells you that they do is wrong because that thought is wrong. None of us have 100% accuracy in everything that we believe about Scripture, but there are serious errors in the world, particularly regarding the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ and, as an extension of that, His work that threaten the identity of churches. And Paul brings his thoughts that he's been sharing with us with the church at Colossae to a close in the verses that we consider today, and he begins to move on to these very serious pressing matters with these foundational principles that he's already shared with us, the identity of Christ and the work of Christ in redemption as the undergirding foundation of everything that he would correct and clarify. Now, we already gave you some hints about that in our first message as we introduced this book to you, so you know that one of the problems that the church at Colossae was contending with in their culture, in their city, was an angel-worshiping cult. Well, how would what Paul already told us in this chapter, how would that be a foundation for what he's going to say about the angel-worshiping cult? Well, if Christ is the only one that is to receive worship, who should have preeminence in all the church, who is the Creator and the only Savior, why would we worship anything else under the sun? You see how the principles that he has already shared would go into what he would continue to say to the church at Colossae. As we ended last week's message, you notice that The punctuation, the sentence that we find in our English translations of the Bible begins in verse 21, and the actual sentence ends in verse 29. Now, you notice this, especially in the King James Bible, that the punctuation, sometimes you'll have a statement end, and there's a semicolon, and then there's a colon, and a semicolon, and sometimes parentheses, and commas, and you just go through the 
punctuation here. Verse 21 doesn't have punctuation as it ends. 22 is a colon, 23 is a semicolon, 24 is a colon, 25 is a semicolon, and then a colon, and then a colon. And then finally, you have a period at the end of verse 29. You might have wondered, and we tried to share this with you last week, why end in the middle of a sentence? Number one, there's no way to consider everything in a 55-minute message contained between verses 21 and 29. But as we observe, this first paragraph that is that we considered ends in verse 23, and a new paragraph in the original language actually begins in verse 24. So there's a natural stopping point between verses 23 and 24. We begin today with verse 24 and this next paragraph, but just because it's a new paragraph, don't think for a moment that the same context does not continue that he's already been talking about, which is why the KJV translators use a semicolon, which, as you know, if you know anything about grammar, you know that that ends a complete thought, but the cynics can keep going. It would be just the same as if there were a period there. But since the context continues to flow, the KJV translators in our language connected these thoughts together with that mark of punctuation. And so we'll begin reading in verse 24, but understand that what we read beginning in verse 24 is a direct continuation of what we have been studying, specifically what we studied together last time. In fact, you can't even define the first word of verse 24, if you look at the grammar of the statement, without reaching back into verse 23. Why is that? Because verse 24 begins with the word, who. So, beginning with the word who, you have to then ask, Who is he talking about? You can't even begin the statement without looking back into the previous context. And so as we begin reading verse 24 and we read together through verse 29, let's actually begin reading with the last statement in verse 23. Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from all ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Could you imagine trying to go through verses 21 through 29 in one message? Now, certainly we need to divide these into various messages, and if God is our helper, we'll complete this chapter here today. I told you up front that there are three basic points that we want to talk about today. We want to talk about the fact that Paul suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And we want to focus on his attitude in suffering. I believe that that will be a great benefit to us as American Christians who do a lot of our time murmuring and complaining about the circumstances of life around us. 
We want to talk about the fact that Paul has been made a minister or a steward, and then we want to look at the fact that the Gentile church, the church as basically we know it and have always known it in our lifetimes, was something that God had hidden from people throughout the history of the world, though he prophesied of it in the Old Testament. It was a mystery that was hidden that was now revealed in the day of the Apostle Paul. What an interesting thought, just to put this in your mind and leave it there as we go on through these passages. What an interesting thought that the very church life that we have as non-Jews who worship Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was the national God, in a sense, of Israel, the God that founded that nation as a peculiar people, a special nation to worship and honor and serve Him, that we as outsiders, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, as it were, we find a blessing to just as great of a degree as any Hebrew person ever could who follows Christ in the New Testament church. Remember that in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, let alone people like you and me. We as Gentiles were not allowed into the house of God. There was, as we've said many times, a rock monument in the temple inscribed in Greek that if any non-Jew passes beyond this point, they would be put to death. And so we were literally separated by what was called the middle wall of partition, and yet as we read in Ephesians, which many believe is a sister epistle to the book of Colossians, this middle wall of partition has been broken down, and you and I, as non-Jews, have the privilege of drawing just as closely to Christ, just as closely to the God of the Bible, as anyone of the nation of Israel ever could. What a great blessing we have in today's time through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin looking at these verses in specific. Verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Probably most of my thinking on this particular sermon this week had to do with the phrase, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, as to give you a little bit of a hint into how I approach sermon prep and studying each and every Sunday morning, Kind of laugh. New baby walks in, nobody pays attention to the preacher. Everybody's like, look at that baby. That baby's so sweet. I'm sitting here, look at that baby. That baby's so sweet. And I'm like, wait a minute, I have to preach a sermon here. All right, hold on a second. We love babies here at Flint River. Somebody asked the other day in a, in a message, do, we, do y'all have a lot of babies there? Because we have babies, and I don't want to be alone, you know. If I come to church with a baby, I'm like, man, we got so many babies. We've got places for babies. If you've got a fussy baby, we've got places. But we're used to babies, and when there are no babies here, we think that church is just silent and dead. We love babies in church so much. So, yes, we, we, we love babies. Anyway, squirrel, sidetrack. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you? Most of my thoughts this past week, prior to digging into deep study, just meditating on this, was on the identity, the antecedent, as it were, of the pronoun who. Who now rejoice in my sufferings? Who is rejoicing in Paul's sufferings? This word who is a pronoun, and pronouns always have antecedents. They refer back to someone else that's explicitly named in the context. Previously to this statement, you have several different characters or people, individuals, identities that are named. 
You have God the Father mentioned in this context. Does God the Father rejoice in the sufferings of Paul? No. How about the Lord Jesus Christ? Does the Lord Jesus Christ rejoice in the sufferings of the Apostle Paul? No. When I first read that, initially I thought, is he saying that the church at Colossae is rejoicing in the sufferings of the Apostle Paul? Wouldn't that be terrible to say, I write to you here at Flint River, and I know that you're rejoicing in my sufferings. What a morbid, cynical statement that must be to make. When Paul says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, he's actually referring to himself. Now, if we were talking about ourselves, we probably wouldn't word it that way, but he does so in the original language, and the KJV translators faithfully translate this Greek word. Most more modern English translations, trans, well, they paraphrase rather that statement, and they simply say, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, but the Greek word for I is not there. The Greek word for who is there, or whoever, or whosoever. And so because of that, the KJV translators faithfully translate that accuracy uh, accurately. But when Paul says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, he's referring to himself. Paul rejoices in his sufferings for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we will consider in a moment. Some of the most interesting and I would even argue unusual language that I've come across in the New Testament is contained in this run of verses that we consider today. To give you something we'll consider in just a moment, Paul says, "...to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church." That's interesting language, isn't it? You see why most of this week has been thinking rather than reading, and I've read it over and over and over, and yet most of it was done in meditation and thinking. What is Paul telling us here in this statement? Because again, it's very unique and unusual language. To fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Unusual language. Paul rejoices in his suffering in the gospel of Christ. Paul rejoices. Now, might I just ask you the question this morning, what is your personal response to adversity? We're designed in such a way that pain is given to us as a gift. I don't know if you're aware of that, but pain is a gift. We don't often look at pain as a gift, but pain is your body's way of telling you, don't do that or something is wrong. If you touch something hot, ouch, that hurts, but it's your body saying stop before you destroy that part of your body. We experience pain when something malfunctions in our bodies and it lets us know there's something that needs attention or something that is injured, go easy on it, so it is not injured further. Adversity brings to our experience emotional pain. None of us enjoy adversity. We do everything that we can to escape adversity, and that's not a bad thing. There were times in Paul's life where people waited outside a gate for him, and they were going to lynch him and beat him and kill him. And so to avoid the adversity and the suffering, what did they do in Paul's life? Well, they take one from David's playbook when King Saul was after David. They lower him down through the window at the, presumably the wall of the city, And he goes and he escapes another way. You find that happening a couple of times in Scripture. 
which is perhaps a good example of being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. If you can escape the controversy and the opposition, then by all means escape the controversy and the opposition. We should never have such a desire for martyrdom that we go out in public seeking to be attacked for our faith in Christ. Now, there are some people in the world that like to do that because they like the attention of the adversity. It feels good. Look at me. Woe is unto me. I'm being afflicted for Christ's sake, and so just sign me up. I love the attention that I receive when I'm afflicted. Paul certainly didn't do that. He did all that he could to avoid it while yet at the same time faithfully preaching. Paul's M.O. was everywhere he went, whatever the audience, whatever the circumstance, take the Word of God and preach what God's Word would have them to say to that particular group of people. To the Jews, he taught about the coming judgment of God upon their nation. To the Gentiles, he would talk about the fact that Christ is the Creator. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He was resurrected. And He will return again as the judge. In every case, to whichever audience Paul speaks, he calls on them to repent wherever they are, whatever their sin issue is, whether it be the Jews' unbelief or the Gentile superstitious paganism. He calls on people to repent. And that's simply his agenda. He preaches Christ He preaches repentance. Sometimes as he does that, he's beaten. There were times that Paul is beaten and he appeals to his Roman citizenship. You beat me uncondemned being a Roman. He's trying to get out of the beating. Paul doesn't want to be punched in the face another time. He doesn't want to be scourged another time. There are times he's stoned and left for dead. He doesn't want to be stoned and left for dead. He doesn't want to be shipwrecked. Paul suffered great adversity and affliction in his life, and he did whatever he could to get out of it. But when it was inescapable, he gladly suffered for the cause of Christ. He didn't seek the pain, but when it was inescapable, he rejoices and he suffers for Christ's sake. I leave that question in your mind. What is your personal response to adversity? And I don't want you to think, what is that person's response to adversity? I don't want you to think, what are the responses to adversity around me? What is my response to adversity for Christ's sake? Now, please understand, I'm not talking about when I act like a jerk and someone gets mad at me because I'm a jerk. Nobody on the live stream, type amen. I have some friends who watch... One of them just clicked, ha-ha, ten bucks says. Anyway, when I'm a jerk and people get upset with me, I shouldn't walk around like, woe is me, I'm a martyr. No, they're mad at you because you were a jerk, Ben. But when I do all that I can to simply love people and preach Christ and there is opposition to what I teach, what is my response to that? My response to Christian suffering. Notice here that Paul rejoices that he suffers for them. And we'll consider his suffering, quote, for them or for you momentarily. But Paul rejoices in adversity. My response isn't often joy in the face of adversity. 
There are some times in my life when I have felt that way, and I can tell you it's an unusual, contradictory, almost invigorating peace that passeth all understanding. When someone comes at you with venom because you are obeying the Word of God, there is an invigorating experience when you simply respond to them with God bless you. When you respond to the cursing with blessing and it reaps coals of fire on their head, there really is a peace of God that passeth all understanding. You may have experienced that in your life. I can tell you in those moments when God has blessed me to obey His teaching, at those instances, it really is an interesting experience. Where we find this rejoicing in our sufferings is literally found as a command in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in His personal ministry. Where do you think, in other words, Paul got this teaching, this example, this lesson, that he is to rejoice in his Christian sufferings? He got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, not only by example, because as Christ suffered all that He suffered, He went as a lamb, dumb before the shearers, opening not His mouth. That, that is... Contrary to everything that we know and believe as Americans, that's why social media exists. It's why there's Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of these other ones that I have no... I'm leaving social media platforms. I'm not joining social media platforms. I'm leaving the... People ask me every day, have you joined this new social media platform? Nope. Nope. Invent some anti-social media and maybe I'll be a part of that. I don't want to be in any more social media. But what we do on that all day is talk and scream and yell and fight and fuss. Paul is literally obeying not only the example of Christ, to go as a lamb dumb before the shears opening, not his mouth, but the command of Christ that we find in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Let's notice this from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed. And by that, sure, there's some degree of persecution that we experience as people laugh and they mock and they scoff at you for your faith in Christ, but that's not but a drop in the bucket concerning the type of persecution that God's people have experienced over the last 2,000 years. There have been faithful saints of God who were fed to wild beasts. Paul references that, being fed to evil beasts, fighting with evil beasts at Ephesus. If the dead rise not, why would I go fight with evil beasts at Ephesus? He would ask the Corinthians, paraphrased. There are Christians who are drawn asunder. There are Christians who have been hanged. There are Christians who have been beheaded. The writer of the epistle to the Colossians was one such. Peter, who wrote about this subject and conveyed the same exact thought, would be crucified, but feeling himself unworthy to die in like manner as his Lord, Peter was crucified upside down by request. He was crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. There have been children of God who loved Him and were faithful to His commandments who were burned at the stake at times even by people who thought that they did God a service by doing so. You name it, as it relates to the death penalty and 
ways to kill another person and God's faithful disciples have suffered that sort of death simply because they were faithful to Christ. And in those cases, in, in those moments, at those times, Jesus says, they are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we learned about that kingdom earlier in chapter 1 of Colossians, didn't we? We are translated from darkness into light, into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Being translated by the power of God, we can be exiled from our country. Don't you know there were many, many of God's children who were faithful to Him, who were exiled even from the land that they lived in, that they loved and even at times served for their faith in Christ, exiled from a land for faithfulness. But you know, you can't be exiled from the kingdom of God. You are translated into it by the power of His dear Son. And oh yes, we enjoy the benefits of it as we repent and are baptized and believe and enter into the courts with singing over and over in our lives. But listen to me, your citizenship in Christ's kingdom is through the power of Christ. And they cannot take that away. And so when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, rejoice. Rejoice because you've got a kingdom that can never be taken away from you. You belong to Christ. And all the devils in hell, Satan himself, and every wicked persecutor in the history of the world, none of them combined even can take away what the Lord has done for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ according to Romans chapter 8. And so, continuing in Matthew 5, the teachings of Christ, blessed are ye. Now, this word is interesting, blessed, by the way. The same Greek word in John 13 translates happy in our KJVs. When Jesus said concerning the washing of the saints' feet and the communion service, if you know these things, if you do these things, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. And so if you know of communion and you know of the washing of the saints' feet, happy are you if you what? If you do them. The same word that translates happy is the word that translates blessed here in Matthew chapter 5. You are happy if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake because you have a kingdom that belongs to you, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. You have a reason to be happy when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for his sake. Why do you have a reason to be happy? Great is your reward in heaven, a reward that was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and they cannot take it away. And so in those moments when you suffer persecution, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Great is your reward. For so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Paul responds this way to adversity and persecution because Christ taught it and Christ lived it. And he knows that he suffers for Christ. And he knows in a sense, in a mystery, he suffers with Christ. We find this in the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 5, the apostles began to experience a taste of this persecution that Jesus taught them was coming. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus told them that they'll be driven from cities, they'll be turned in by their own family members, they'll be drawn before councils of men, before kings and rulers, and they'll be beaten, they'll be slaughtered, they'll be killed, and it'll be a great time of suffering and persecution for the faithful. 
the apostles begin to experience this, and we find the ramping up of these persecutions. It begins with threatening. It begins with forbidding them to preach. They try to drive the Christians out of the public arena. Go and do this Christianity thing you know in private, but don't do it in public. Does it sound familiar? The next thing you know, they begin to threaten them with laws and with penalties, light penalties. We'll arrest you if you preach Christ publicly. What you believe is not welcome in our society. Now, by the way, in this day, it was at Christ that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah, that he was crucified, that he died for sins, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, and he was their judge in our days. Oh, certainly that's a part of what the world doesn't want to hear. But there are some other things that the world doesn't want to hear that they'll drive you from the public, uh, the public square for believing. You believe in creation? Oh, there must be something wrong with you intellectually. Certainly you should believe. Everyone who is anything scientific believes in evolution. To be a creationist in a world full of pagan evolutionists? Pagan evolutionists? Yes. Or how about this? To believe that God created them in the beginning male and female. That's not popular in today's time. Male and female? Well, surely that's a social construct. Last time I checked, changing diapers of newborn babies, it wasn't a social construct. It's literally the way they're made. And as a dad of five little kids, and now, praise God, a, a little granddaughter and a little grandson, you know, little girls play with dolls, and little boys pick up sticks and make guns and swords. Why? Because they're that way naturally. Ethan had a bucket on the front porch of my parents' house for like 10 years, and every one of them was a different gun, and they were all sticks from a pine tree. He tell you, that's an AK-47. That's a sniper rifle. This one's a Star Wars blaster. And I'm just like, what? It's amazing to, to more woke people today that little boys and little girls are little boys and little girls from the time that they're born. It's not popular to believe that, but it's directly from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, he made them what? Male and female. And then you go beyond that to the make up the breakdown of marriage, what marriage is supposed to be. One man and one, one, uh, one, man and one woman for one lifetime till death do them part except to be broken under the strongest of terms like betrayal and abuse. Well, the world doesn't want to hear that, does it? There are ideas that will get you driven from the public square. You know, I've had this thought many times. I, I can do some, some really accurate voice impersonations. You know, characters like Yoda and Winnie the Pooh and Rachel's like, you know, when those guys that do those voices die, you ought to go audition. And I thought, all it takes is one sermon on this subject getting out. And I would never be welcome in Hollywood as a voice actor. You have to be a voice actor when you have a face like this, right? Anyway, y'all can laugh. It's okay. <laughs> we had an extra hour of sleep, folks. Come on. So if you hold to these ideas, the world is not receptive, and you will be driven from the public square. So rather than wonder, wow, some strange thing has happened unto me, what do you do? Well, you simply anticipate it, and when you do suffer reviling or beyond that persecution, you rejoice. The apostles, back to Acts chapter 5, have been threatened, then they were arrested, and then after they were arrested, notice what happens they, in verse 40, beat them 
and commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It ramps in intensity, and then by the time you come to just a few chapters later, you have the beheading of James, the brother of John, and that's in chapter 12. And from this moment on, from this moment on, in that region, if you were a public preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would beat you and stone you and execute you. And it got so hostile that even if you were privately worshiping God in your house and you love the Lord Jesus, they would come to your door. They knock on your door. Do you believe in Jesus of Nazareth? And you had a choice. You could either say, yes, I do, or no, I don't. And we read that Jesus is ashamed of us in his teaching in the New Testament when we say that we do not believe and we deny him before men. He calls on us to confess him before men in those moments. And those so many brave saints of God said, yes, I believe him. Yes, I believe in him. Yes, I worship him. I believe he's God incarnate. I believe he's seated at the right hand of God and he's coming again. And nothing that you can do can ultimately hurt me because the worst you can do is kill me. And in death, where do I go? I go to be with him in glory. They beat the apostles in Acts 5. They threaten the apostles in Acts 5. They command that they should not speak in the name of Jesus in Acts 5. And what happens? The apostles go their way. They departed from the presence of the council. Sad? Licking their wounds? Look at the language. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Please be clear, they didn't enjoy the pain. You know, that's actually a psychological problem when people enjoy pain. It's a sign of mental illness when people enjoy pain. We don't enjoy pain. But they do rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sweet name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would I be bold enough to rejoice that I was found worthy to suffer shame for his sake? Look at that. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. In other words, in their mind, they recognize that the enemy, that wicked one, all of his devils in this world, and all of his people in this world, that the enemy forces counted them enough of a threat, they were found worthy to suffer for his name's sake. And because of that, they rejoice. So back to Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, who, referring to himself, now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So we're one clause in and it's 40 minutes later. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now the next phrase. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. That is an interesting statement. It is an unusual statement. What does Paul mean to fill up that which is behind or lacking, as it were, of the afflictions of the body of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. Well, before we talk about what it means, we want to spend just a moment of time talking about what it doesn't mean. To fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. 
First of all, it doesn't mean that Christ's suffering on the cross for the sins of his people was somehow insufficient and more suffering of more people was needed for the purpose of redemption. How do you know that? Because the same writer is emphatic. You read it over the past few messages from this very epistle that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, as Ephesians 1 says, or here, verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile. We have redemption through the work of Christ on the cross, period. And as he cried out with a loud voice on the cross of Calvary, it is finished. The work of redemption is completed. And we know that that work was finished because he's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. There's no doubt as to whether or not Jesus redeemed those he came to redeem. He shall save his people from their sins. Now, just to give you a a nice definitive statement, I, I like to use the phrasing that upon the cross, Jesus once for all justified his people, declared them righteous, legally took away their sin debt, redeemed them. Where do you get that once for all? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, look at the phrase, once for all. Now, by the way, once for all, all there as you very well no, doesn't mean every human being without exception because there are human beings who will be judged according to their sin, sons of Belial, those of their father the devil, those who were not of his sheep, John chapter 10. We know in John 17 he came to give eternal life to as many as the father had given him. And so the all there has reference to all of his people. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all Every single child of God was saved by the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Paul is not aiding in his affliction in the redemption of God's people. That's not what he means here. To fill up that which was lacking of the sufferings, the afflictions of Christ in his body. Christ finished the work. His suffering is enough. What does Isaiah 53 say by prophecy? The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He shall see the travail of his soul and be what? Satisfied by his one offering shall many be justified, made righteous, delivered, saved. By the one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so it doesn't mean that Christ's sufferings didn't finish the work. Nor does this mean that there is a total maximum level of suffering the church must experience in time. And so Paul was going to suffer so much of it, as much of it as he could, so they wouldn't experience it. This isn't saying that the church has a, like a tally bar, like your phone is charged, and once you get to 100, you're at 100, and so if Paul can take 10, then maybe there's nine other people that don't have to experience one. It's not saying that there's an overall limit to suffering the church would suffer, and once it's over, Paul can experience more of it, so they experience less of it. He's not saying that he suffers, so they don't have to. What he is saying here is that the church 
and faithful ministers will suffer. There's a lot of suffering that the church will go through before the end of time. Now, we know that the church experienced great suffering in the first century in Judea and in the Roman Empire. So much suffering that it's a time of suffering that no time before and no time after would rival. How do you know that? Because that's literally what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse. But those days would be cut short for the elect's sake. Jesus used the word elect, and by extension of that, Matthew and Mark, as they record that sermon, used the word elect. The church will continue to suffer. And Paul says, I'm simply taking part in a little bit of the suffering that the church will experience There's a lot of suffering the church is going to experience as it continues to go through this world, and I'm simply taking part in some of these afflictions in my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church. Now, briefly, notice from other passages, Peter would dwell on this, Paul in other places, as he does here, would dwell on this. When we suffer, we suffer for Christ. But I want you to understand when we suffer, we don't just suffer for Him, we suffer with Him. That is to say, we are made partakers of the sufferings of Christ, not in a redemptive sense, but it's the same quality of suffering in the sense that we are rejected for what we teach, we are persecuted because we love Him and we follow Him and we experience it because of Him, we experience, we partake of the sufferings of Christ. We suffer with Him. What's so sweet about that thought? Listen to me. Because if you're ever called on to suffer for the name of Christ, and according to Paul in his writings to Timothy, all, all who live righteously shall suffer persecution. You will in some sense. Or it might be ridicule from a teacher or other students at school. It might be betrayal from family and alienation from those that you love. It might be arrest. It might be that the police take you to jail because you had the audacity to say that righteousness is righteousness and wickedness is wickedness. Whatever the level of your suffering might be, when you suffer, Christ is there with you in that moment of suffering. When the three Hebrews were cast into the fiery furnace... You remember this story? There's a fourth figure in the flame. And even a pagan king could look at that figure and say that the fourth had the likeness of the Son of God. You know, modern contemporary English versions make that Son of the Gods. Even the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Daniel, has that singular God. And it's rotten in the book of Daniel. A terrible translation at times. In the flame, there is Christ with His people. In our affliction, in persecution, in suffering for the gospel, for the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is there personally with you in those moments. What a promise is given. No wonder they come away rejoicing. Oh, you're beating me, but Jesus is here. When Stephen is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, 
He looks up into the heavens and what does he see? The heavens open and Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. He wouldn't trade it for the world. He'd sign up for it again. Because in those moments, he saw Christ so much more intimately and clearly than at other times in his life. So much so that he wouldn't have it any other way. You say, Stephen, could you go back and do it again and and maybe escape the stoning? Not on your life. He experienced the presence of Christ so powerfully, he literally saw him with his physical eyes at his moment of death. What Paul is saying here is that he suffers for and with Christ as a preacher, and this is for the body's sake. He suffers for Christ's people in that he preaches for their edification, for their conversion, for their sanctification. And as he preaches, this invites suffering. And as the suffering comes his way, if it's inescapable, he rejoices that he's found worthy. All of these great men of God and these women of God rejoiced in their sufferings. I want you to go home this week and learn of an early Christian woman named Perpetua. Just from memory, this woman survives being fed to the wild beasts, and as they come to execute those who did not die, she takes the dagger of the soldier who came to execute her and put it to her throat. These people didn't run from it. They knew Christ so intimately that you couldn't stop them from preaching the word and worshiping Christ, even by penalty of death. All the while, they did nothing wrong. They were the most ideal model citizens, and you can read ancient writings that said as much written by unbelievers, that Christians, they went everywhere simply loving and great humility, submitting even unto death for the love of their Savior. Paul continues, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you. And there we see clearly what he referred to in the previous verse. I'm given a dispensation from God for you to fulfill the word of God. And for that cause I suffer. What does this mean, I made a minister according to the dispensation? We don't use this word dispensation a whole lot with this meaning, this definition in our language today. The word dispensation here obviously refers to something being dispensed. You dispense. You little kids probably never have had a Pez dispenser, but those of us that grew up in the 80s, you know what a Pez dispenser is? It's this little bitty head with the with the little, you know, candy holder, and you little you click it, and the candy pops out, and I don't know who invented that gimmick, but it's a way to sell somebody a roll of sweet tarts for four times the price because it comes with a plastic toy that you throw away literally when you're done with it. Anyway, Pez dispenser. What does the Pez dispenser do? It dispenses Pez, candies. What does a soap dispenser do? Well, it dispenses soap. That's the sense of this word dispensing or dispensation that Paul uses here. People use the word dispensation today to refer to eras of time, but that's not what Paul is saying. Dispensation of God here has reference to stewardship. In fact, a synonym of this word is stewardship. Paul has been dispensed a ministry. 
God has called Paul. He's given Paul a ministry. And Paul is to go and to fulfill this ministry that God has given him. Now, as we get into what sort of ministry this is, just briefly from verse 26, we'll see that Paul has a very special role in this. This fulfilling the word of God as reference to the Gentiles being grafted in and the church being given to the Gentiles, God having worshipers out of every nation, kindred and tongue. What is Paul's apostleship? How is it distinct from Peter? Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. The man that God called to go and to plant churches, to ordain ministers and leave them in every Gentile city in Asia Minor and in Eastern Europe. Now, there are times that he wanted to continue in Asia Minor and God sends him to Eastern Europe. But after that, he ends up in Asia Minor again. He travels all around the known world at that time as the apostle to the Gentiles. And as Gentiles in the church age... Look at the names of these cities that these epistles are written to. Corinth, Rome, Thessaloniki, Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia. You've got one epistle believed to be written by Paul to a Jewish audience, and it's the book of Hebrews. And because they so loathed him with great disdain, he didn't even put his name. He didn't even sign his name. He writes to Gentiles as the apostle to the Gentiles. God has called him and given him a stewardship given to him for them to fulfill the word of God. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Stewardship, by the way, refers to when one is brought into the care for the property of another. A steward is someone who's hired by the owner to take care of the place. Have you ever had a house sitter when you're out of town? One of my dear friends is a house sitter, and he often goes around the country and house sits for people when they go out of town and takes care of the property and takes care of the dog and takes care of the mail and takes care of everything that needs to be done. He's a steward for someone else's property. Paul is a steward for the people of God and the Word of God. He doesn't own it. God used him to write it, but it wasn't his words. It was inspired of the Holy Spirit. We as preachers are not lords, but we're stewards. And time wouldn't allow me to elaborate on that, and it needs to be elaborated on. But we are merely stewards to obey the Word of God. And let me just tell you that as you are a steward of God who obeys the Word of God and faithfully preaches the Word of God, you will suffer for His name's sake. Opposition will come your way. And when adversity and affliction does come to the door of the gospel minister, we shouldn't be confused. We shouldn't be taken off guard. We simply expect it, and we continue to plod along. For Christ is worthy, and His word is to be obeyed. And we ought to, as the apostle said, when threatened, you remember what Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Lastly today, fulfilling the Word of God. That word fulfill is used with reference to prophecy. 
How would Paul's ministry be such a ministry to fulfill God's word? Well, he explains in verse 26, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. What is that mystery? That the Gentiles would be able to worship God the same way or to equal degree as the Jews. In the book of Acts chapter 15, and we'll go through this part just very briefly, you're a living fulfillment of this prophecy as Gentiles in 2021. You're being here today is a fulfillment of this. Flint River Church and every other Gentile church is a fulfillment of this today. You are fulfilling the Word of God as a Gentile. But did you know that the reality of the Gentile church was obscured from the worshipers of God and especially from the Gentiles throughout human history until the first century? What was the first Gentile convert? You remember his name? Said Acts chapter 10, I heard somebody whisper Cornelius. Cornelius. And when that happened, there was scandal. Peter, you went into the Gentiles and you fellowshiped with them and you, you baptized them? What are you thinking? And Peter simply says, what God has cleansed, I cannot call common. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Cornelius was a saved man before Peter got there. If your theology can't explain that, you need to study a little more. Because Cornelius is saved before Peter ever gets there. God hears his prayers in heaven. He's not a Romans 3 natural man. He's not dead in trespasses and in sins. The Holy Spirit had quickened him. And then he sends for a preacher to go preach to that man. Open the door to the Gentiles. As the Gentile church begins to spread abroad, heresy enters in, as so, as so often does. Pharisees begin to teach that they have to keep the law. They've got to be circumcised. If they don't keep the law of Moses, they can't be saved. As Peter would say, we believe, putting an end to this debate in Acts chapter 15, that we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus we shall be saved even as they. In Acts chapter 15, we find this referenced in verses 13 through 18. This is James speaking. Men and brethren, Simeon, which is Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, referring to what God is doing at that time. And to this agree the words of the prophet as it is written. This is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David. That's referring to the work of Christ, the son of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. That refers probably to the remnant of Israel that worship God. And all the Gentiles... Upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Amos teaches in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, that God will build up the house of David, the tabernacle of David, and the remnant of the people will come, and all the Gentiles upon whom his name is called shall come and worship the Lord. You are Gentiles who are called by his name, worshiping in the tabernacle of David today. That's literally what he's referring to. And so 
James goes on to say, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God knew he was going to do that, even though we didn't. And he even told about it in prophecy that we didn't understand until now. You know the significance of that? Look at the book of Genesis chapter 12. When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, this is the beginning of everything that took place in the nation of Israel, which would be culminated in the coming of Christ, which ushers in the day that we now live in, everything we know in the church. Literally, God's interacting with human beings in the way that he does. We find the root of that in Genesis 12. And in the life of Abraham, our motto is the just shall live by faith. He is literally the example of that. The Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee, listen to this next part, shall all families of the earth be blessed. All families, not just the nation of Israel, not just the seed of Abraham, but through Abraham would all nations, all families of the earth be blessed. It's no wonder then in Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9, when we find a glimpse into heaven and the scope of God's redeemed out of every nation, kindred and tongue, that they are out of every nation, every kindred and every tongue. God has people out of every family because in Christ shall all families of the earth be blessed. Not every person out of every family, no, but people out of every family of the earth shall be blessed through Christ. The promise that God made Abraham extends far beyond the nation of Israel to a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. And this is a mystery that was, let's read it, hath been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ancient Baptist writers always use that as a definition of faith. And what that expression does in this context is summarize everything that we have in Christ. Christ in you is the cause of your hope, and Christ is the object of your hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that phrase being a summary of our experience in Christ. Paul concludes this chapter, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. He indiscriminately preached the word. To the dead, he had the savor of death, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. To the living, he had the savor of life. To those that were dead in sin, he smelled like death in that message of the cross. To those that were alive in Christ, he smelled like life to those who were alive. But Paul preaches indiscriminately warning every man, teaching of the identity of Christ, the holiness of God, the judgment of God. He preaches his word. He doesn't dilute it. He doesn't cut it. 
He doesn't alter it. He simply proclaims the message of the cross. And as he says, he's the savor of one type of man and a different savor to another type of man. But his intent is that we present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That is to say, mature. He does what he does, so it has an effect on people's lives. I hope that our messages here have an effect on your life. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. You know the secret behind Paul's ministry? He had a keen intellect. He was a brilliant man. But the power behind the preaching of the Apostle Paul was not his intellect, his raising, his Jewish education, The power in Paul's preaching, as with every other minister of the gospel that has any degree of success in their ministry, the power is God in them. Christ, God in you, is the secret to a powerful, successful ministry. At the end of the day, we are unworthy vessels, and anything that we do, we do through Christ, which strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... The language that we read today, what we studied today, one could read through that, Lord, and not understand the depth of the teaching. So many times in our day and age, we can be 3,000 miles wide and an inch deep, but, Lord, these passages, though they might even be confusing when we first read them, are so deep as they speak about the rejoicing that we should do in our suffering, how you're with us in moments of affliction. Lord, we know that You gave that man, like you've given all of your ministers, a dispensation of stewardship to preach the word. And Lord, as Gentiles, two millennia later, we rejoice, Lord, that you called us into your presence, that you've given us the benefit of the church, the blessing of seeking your son, the information that we have in the gospel, the assurance that we have of salvation when we were blind Gentiles, alienated from the oracles of God and the house of God, you've given us the blessing of serving you, and there was nothing that we could do, nothing that we could offer. And we know, Lord, that you've given us this great blessing as you've translated us into the kingdom of your dear Son. We have this through the power of God. Lord, we pray that you would give my preaching power through Christ working in me. We pray, Father, that you'd give me strength to preach and warn every man, and we know, Lord, that The reception depends on what you've done in the heart of the people that we preach to. But Lord, we would that all that hear and receive the word, that we could present them unto you as mature, even as it were perfect in Colossians chapter 1. Thank you for this book, this epistle. We pray that you'd guide me in our coming studies from it. We ask that it would be impactful in every life. In Jesus' name we say, amen.